Well, back in 1997, the Red River flooded. And some of you may remember seeing on TV screens all of these images of a city that was both flooded and on fire, Grand Forks, North Dakota. That flood that came in was absolutely devastating. Most of the city was submerged at, at, to different degrees. And uh, I was just up there in April. And today in Grand Forks, most of the people I talk to anyway, they still reference time by before the flood and after the flood. We're going to talk about a flood today. There are a number of ancient accounts, there's a whole bunch of them, of a massive flood that struck the world. And you look at these ancient accounts, they're actually spread all over the world. A whole lot of them are right in the Middle East. But all of these um, stories testify to a massive flood that happened thousands of years ago. And it's interesting to see how many similarities there are between those ancient stories. The most well-known of the ancient flood stories comes from the Bible. How many of you are at least somewhat familiar with the story of... Noah's Ark. Raise a hand if you, you know Noah. You probably got some little Sunday school songs that you could even sing, right? Well, you can find the Noah narrative in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. That's what we're going to look at today. I grew up with that story. I grew up with it. And as a kid, I never questioned it. In fact, as a kid, there seemed to be things outside of the Noah account in the Bible itself that seemed to verify it. I remember there was a book on our bookshelf at home. It was this one. It's called Noah's Ark. I touched it. And as I was a kid, I'm like, how cool would that be to go climb a mountain and find Noah's Ark? Well, as I got a little older, I found out that this book is not a credible source. And as I got older, I also began to say, man, there is stuff in the narrative itself, in the Bible, that does not seem to fit experience and what we can test and what we can verify. Let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis chapter 7, um, verse 6. Here's one of these examples that I, you know, I, I looked at and I'm like, man, does it really say that? This is uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse 6. Oh, I want to let you know, too, if, if, um, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. Because we think it's important to not just hear about these accounts and these stories, but to actually read them yourselves. And so we have a stack that we keep there each and every week at the, the table in the back. We'd encourage you to take one home. All right, here we go. It says this. Noah was how old? 600 years old. Anyone ever met anyone that's 600? I mean, when I was a teenager, if you were 40, you seemed like you were 600 years old. But, And then it, that, when the floodwaters came on the earth, it, when Noah died, the text itself says he was how old? Does anybody know? 950. 950 years old. So right away, it's, it's, it's problematic for someone who's saying, did this really happen? It only gets harder to swallow from there. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 7, verses 17 now through... 20. We're, I'm, I'm reading right from the Bible here. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the, earth, the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. A cubit is about 18 inches. As a teenager, 
looking at this. I'm trying to just say that these things happen. And, and I'm thinking, I don't know a whole lot about climbing mountains, but I've heard that phrase death zone attributed to you start getting above, what is it, like 16,000, something like that. You start getting in this death zone. How do you, how do you even survive in the, the atmosphere? And if you do the math on this much water, and people have tried to do the math on this much water, that takes a lot of water to completely cover the earth. And if that much water covered the earth four to 5,000 years ago, that should be pretty easy to verify, shouldn't it? There should be evidence all over the planet consistently that testifies to this event. It should be compelling. It should be indisputable. Let's go back to our text. Verses 21 through 23, it says this, And all flesh that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed, uh, that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was a breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. Again, as a teen, I'm just trying to follow the facts here. And I found myself thinking, if modern-day Turkey is ground zero for all of this, four to 5,000 years is not a lot of time to differentiate species and differentiate races and repopulate places like Australia and Hawaii and Antarctica. Well, the timing of my growing skepticism didn't make things any easier because I didn't care much about the boundaries that God put around behaviors as a kid. You know, be nice to your brother and sister. I don't know if it's actually written that way. I've got that one a lot, right? But but as I got older, a lot of these other boundaries were really hard, especially ones around sexuality and other things. And at about the time that my questions peaked, my eyes were being opened to a God that expected us to walk differently than pretty much everybody else at Hastings Senior High. The scripture was asking me to go all in, all in, to take up my cross daily. And it got harder to say no to things that most of my friends were saying yes to when the book I was supposed to trust contained stories that felt intellectually embarrassing at the time. Well, if the internet had been a thing in 1986, I could have found a host of sites that would have offered to try to help. And many of those sites draw our attention back to Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. If you go back there, this is where a lot of them will point you to. To in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. There are a number of sites that will point you to this. And they'll say, you know, if you use the language from Genesis 1, there was a, a water canopy, a, a vapor canopy. And that probably explained why things could live longer. And that if there was really a cataclysmic event where there was waters coming from the heaven and springs from the earth bursting forth, forth that would explain the mountains and it would explain the chasms in the earth and would explain a number of things. Okay. And those theories are also sharply disputed, too. And if they are so clear, why, why are they sharply disputed? I'm not trying to answer that. I just am saying I was wrestling with these questions. And one summer night in 1986, I just led a mission, El Paso, Texas, getting this close to walking away. 
Because how can I put my trust? How can I stake my entire life on this? Right? All right, well, we'll circle back to that story in a few minutes. But first, I want to encourage you to take out your green note pages and write this down, because this is so important. Making peace with mystery is an important life skill. Can I get an amen to that? I'm just talking in general. I'm not talking about the things you find in the Bible exclusively. I'm talking about in life. You got to make peace with mystery. You got to make peace with it because we have it all the time. One of my mentors who knows me really, really well and how I want to know. Don't tell me to accept something in faith. I want to know. One of my mentors said, Chris, he taught me a lot of time ago. He said, the moment of 100% certainty almost never arrives on anything. On anything, one of life's most important skills, you got to learn when you have enough information to make a wise decision. Every decision we make is faith-based. Can I get an amen? It is. Every decision we make is faith-based. It's not a matter of if you have faith, it's what you're placing your faith in. In a couple weeks, you saw the teams up here, the Mission Mexico teams. We're going to hop on planes for El Paso. Does that take faith? Yes. You're staking your life on this. It takes faith. And yet, we're staking our faith on something when none of us who are getting on the plane know everything about the physics of flight. Some more than others, but none of us know everything about the physics of flight. None of us giving on, getting on a plane know everything about that particular model of the plane and whether or not it's aligned with the laws of physics, which is important, right? Right? And none of us know everything about the particular plane of that model that we're stepping on and whether or not every mission critical piece on that plane has been tested, how it's been tested, who it's been tested by, and whether or not that's going to get us from point A to point B without a crash landing. We have seat cushions. We're going to El Paso, Texas. There's no water flare, right? It doesn't matter if we have seat cushions. We need to know, is this going to get us there, right? All right. Also, none of us have checked to make sure that the airspace is clear, that all the terrorists have been properly screened out, and that the men and women wearing uniforms in the cockpit actually know how to fly the plane. We're doing all of that and more on what? On faith. On faith. To reduce the faith component of our decision, we'd have a lot of homework to do. And that's just about getting on the plane. Every decision all of us face all the time, it takes faith. It takes faith. If we want to eliminate faith from our lives, we're never going to get far, which is why the next section of our notes matters. There's a place to write this down, and we're doing the unprecedented step of giving you two talk points at once. Are you kidding me? I think you can handle it. Here we go. When should a modern mind, when should a modern mind make peace with mystery? Because we have to. When should we make peace with mystery? Let me offer two thoughts to that. Number one, when the source is what? credible, when the source is credible, and when the particulars aren't essential to the point. If there's a situation you come across where you've got a credible source and you don't need to know everything in the mystery to be able to get something from it, I can make peace with mystery in those situations. We do it every day. Well, the more I study this book, the more I study this book, the more I trust it. The more I trust it. The deeper I go, the more I ask questions. All my questions don't get answered. But the more I ask questions, the more I critically approach this with a desire to learn and grow, the more I trust this source. I trust it. And many of you do. Most of you do in this room too. And can I just give you some important advice when it comes to trying to look for answers to these questions that we have and other people have? Please, 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 please fact check your facts. 
before presenting them. Just because something sounds good on the internet, just because something sounds good in a, in a research paper, just because there's a thought that maybe sounds like, oh, this will prove the Noah narrative really happened. Be careful, fact check, fact check, fact check. Because if you present information that someone can quickly dispute, what have you done? You've actually made it harder for that person to trust you now. So yes, look for evidence, look for wisdom, all that kind of stuff. I do it all the time. Just be careful, be careful, be careful what you offer up as evidence. I mean, my, my, my resources, I put, have a couple of them up here today. These are some of my go-tos, ESV Study Bible. It says this about specifically with the flood and being careful about what you present as evidence that it happened. Certainly, they write, the description of the flood implies that it was widespread and catastrophic, but there are difficulties in making confident claims that the account is geared to answering the question of just how widespread. Thus, it would be incautious. I love that word. It would be incautious to attribute to the flood all of the geological formation observed today, the strata, the fossils, the deformations, and so on. Geologists agree that catastrophic events such as volcanic eruptions, large-scale floods have had a great impact on the landscape. It is questionable, though, whether these events can, in fact, achieve all that might be claimed for them. A guy came up after the first service and he said, hey, I was on a submarine during a hurricane. And this massive submarine displaces, what was it, like some 44,000 tons or something. He says, we were just thrown around. He said, yes, these things, these, there, there can be earth-shaking things that can change our world. Yes, and be careful of what you offer as evidence for that, that it happened, right? Another one of the sources, NIV Application Commentary, writes this. I love the way they word this. They say, with no apologies or embarrassment, I accept the Bible as God's revelation of himself. It is a supernatural book. Can I get an amen to that? There are supernatural things that are testified to in the scripture. If I'm convinced, for instance, that the Bible teaches a global flood, my worldview of faith dictates that whatever scientific or logical problems may exist must be set aside in deference to the text. Everyone with us so far? I agree with that statement. And I also agree with this. They're not in contradictory to one another. Yet... While this firm commitment is not subject to compromise or evocation, it cannot afford to be what? Naive. Don't be naive. The last thing we want to do is to bring the text to disrepute and subject it and ourselves to ridicule by making claims for the Bible that it never makes for itself. So important. Fact check your facts. Fact check your facts. Well, one of the things that was really interesting is, is what I try to do more than ever before is I try to follow the scripture where it goes. I try to say, where does it actually take us? Rather than where do I hope it goes or what do I hope it supports or whatever? Where does it go? And in the note of narrative, Noah narrative, it goes to some pretty remarkable places. I've spent most of my life when I go to Noah, I'm like, man, how do you overcome these questions that perhaps it's not trying to answer? And then I miss the point of it all. One of the things you're going to discover as you dig into this text, there are things going on that are not readily discernible in the English language and in English translations. For example, the language in Genesis for this flood, the language is so strong, so strong. The word that it uses for flood in Genesis is chapter 6 through 11. The word that shows up like a dozen times there doesn't show up anywhere else in the rest of the Bible except in one Psalm 29.10. This was a big event and the Bible's using language to say this was big. It's interesting to note 
that that Hebrew word that Genesis uses for flood is similar to an ancient Akkadian word for a devastating flood of cosmic proportions. And both Genesis and the Psalm depict God as enthroned over this flood, which directly challenges Akkadian texts, which depict that their gods are the lords of the great deluge. So just in that one example, just in that one word, you start to go, there is more going on here in this text than we may understand as we're looking through it as 21st century modern minds looking in, who speak English, all right? The Bible is clearly operating on literary levels that modern readers can easily miss. What we can see in the Noah narrative are themes. We see themes that connect this narrative to what comes before it. And one of the most embarrassing things for myself as I was going into this project here for this specific topic is I've always pulled Noah out. I've always pulled it out from the Bible and looked at it with its internal context. What happens when we keep it where it's found? This is where it gets really, really interesting. So let's briefly t- go and press into two takeaways from the Noah narrative. Number one, sin affects everyone and what? Everything. Sin affects everyone and everything. As I was preparing this message and following the text where it leads, I was looking for takeaways that came straight from the text itself. And this is one that pops. And it's a repeat from last week. And so I'm like, I can't do that. I can't just repeat what we talked about last week. Where's the new content? Where's the compelling reason to be here? If we're just going to repeat what we said last week, why do we even want to show up? Except for great hot dogs, which by the way, will be, <laughs> right? Well, so I'm feeling a little bad. I'm like, find something new here, something different. And then I have the blinding flash of the obvious. Um, if you're serious about following the text where it leads, go where it leads. And if it's repeating what came before at, maybe that's on purpose. And if you look at the takeaways that we could use pretty much every week through this whole series, this is one of them. Because it repeats in Genesis over and over and over again. And does it stop in Genesis? This theme repeats where? in the rest of the scripture over and over and over again. And if you want external verification for what we're talking about today, does that repeat in your life over and over and over again? It does. In fact, both of today's takeaways repeat themselves over and over again, not just in Genesis, but all through the Bible. In a twist of tragic irony, when humanity, who were created in God's image, were presented with the temptation to be more like God by tasting a forbidden fruit, we became unlike God. Remember that from last week? We, we were tempted. You could be more like God if you take a bite. We took a bite. In doing so, we became unlike God. And what was once all good was corrupted and sin spread and it spread and it spread humanity humanity was to be fruitful and to multiply and humanity as we did that we were to be the representatives of god and we were to go about doing good and stewarding well and loving one another and bringing to every corner of creation god as bearers of his image 
That's what we were supposed to do. Care for his creation, care for one another well. Instead, as people multiplied, wickedness spread. And look at the situation that was before God sent the flood. This is Genesis 6, 5, and 11. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How complete is that language? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That word translated here as violence has a wide range of meaning. It can refer to individuals or groups. It can refer to physical or psychological harm. It can describe everything from social injustice to war. The world was filled with all of it and we were bringing it everywhere we went. As was the case in the original garden, those who had sinned needed to be cast out. But where do you send them? Because everywhere you send them, what do they bring with? Well, the exception to this was a man named Noah. Here's how Noah is described in Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The language here is so strong that this language is really only used for Noah and Moses in the Bible. There's some pieces. There was a guy, Enoch, some of these. There's some pieces. But this language, this strong, at least in some of my sources, they said, you only got Noah and Moses that are this righteous. Well, God initiated a covenant with Noah, and Noah's family entered the ark. And it says, the Lord closed the door. And then God says something very interesting. He says, in seven days, in seven days, the rains will come. Seven days. Is that, if you had been reading Genesis from the start, does that seven days ring a bell at all? He says, in seven days, the rains will start. The rains will come. Here's where this gets really interesting. The name Noah means rest or relief. When creation was done after the six days, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. Interesting. He rested. And get this, seven days after God closes the door, creation is undone. It's undone. Just when I thought I knew this story, reading it in the context of what came before it with the help of great study tools, my eyes are open. This account is about the undoing of creation and then the redoing of it again. The, the language, it, it's all over the place. In the beginning, in the beginning, God separated the waters in the expanse and the earth below. What happens in the flood narrative? They collide again, right? What was once separated collides again. And when they collide again, there's no longer any separation from the water and the land. And what God had filled with living things is now emptied of life. Order became disorder again. But then, when there's only water, the text says a wind blows. A wind blows. And not reading it in Hebrew, because I can't read Hebrew. 
I miss the fact that the word for wind there is the same word for wind that we translate as spirit in Genesis 1-2. Where when there was disorder in all this water, who was hovering over the, 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 the waters? The spirit. Same word. So now, there's no separation. The wind, same word, the spirit, blows. And what happens? The waters and the land separate. Land appears. What happens when the land appears? An ark rests on the land. Door opens up. What populates the world? The animals. And get this, a man who this account, the Noah account, says bears God's image, a man who this account, the Noah account, says is righteous, a man who this account, the Noah account, says walks with God, appears on the land. And God blesses him and says this. I'm not making this up. You can fact check me. Genesis 9, verse 7. This is after the flood. And you be, what does it say? Fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Does any of what I've just described sound at all like Genesis 1 or 2? Yeah! The order is brought to disorder, then it's brought to reorder again. All right, so when I was a teenager, I was so focused on whether or not the flood covered the peak of Mount Everest, I missed the point. I absolutely missed the point. Do we, as humans, bring sin everywhere? Yes. Even the most righteous person? Yes. Is there hope? Is there hope? The Noah narrative echoes the creation narrative. And in it, we once again see humanity is given the chance to do the right thing. God sets before us life and death, blessings and curses. Noah chose life. That's how he got to get on that ark and he was blessed. So now when the flood's all over, let's pick up where we left off. Let's read um, in chapter 9. Uh, this picks up right after the go out and multiply piece. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17 says this, And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see and I will remember the everlasting covenant between my God, between God and every living creature that is of all flesh on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. As I was prepping my notes to myself, I, I wrote this note to myself. Is the Noah narrative embarrassing? Only for what? Humanity's pride. Humanity's pride. And that's certainly on an individual level. I'm so embarrassed today that I once saw the Noah narrative as something a modern person should be embarrassed about instead of something that is so rich. 
that I have to come with humility and go, whoa, I got a lot of understanding to do before I start making accusations about this. But that's not the embarrassment that I'm ultimately referring to here. Here's where I meant by humanity is, is, is embarrassing for our pride. After God rescues Noah and his family in as dramatic a faction, fashion as the world has ever seen, after the one who walked with God and his family now have an opportunity to walk with God again in a world free from evildoers. So you got the most righteous person ever. He's walking in an, a new reality where there's no evildoers. After God blesses Noah, he paints a promise in the sky in the very next section of scripture. Noah creates a garden, plants a vineyard with fruit-bearing plants. And Noah drinks so much wine, he passes out naked. And the downward spiral begins again. After everything that just happened, Noah ends up in a garden naked and ashamed. Does that seem to echo anything that we've read before in Genesis 3? If this happened to Noah, who was described as righteous, using words that I think only applied to Moses. If this happened to Noah, who had the faith to build a boat that was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, a boat with a footprint of 95,700 square feet, a volume of 1.4 million cubic feet. If Noah ended up like Adam, naked and ashamed, what hope is there for us? Here's the second of two takeaways that I think are jumping out of the Noah narrative. God saves sinners who place their trust in who? In him. He saves us who place our trust in him. And that, my friends, is a theme that's repeated over and over and over again, too. Is there a lot of mystery surrounding the Noah narrative? Yes. Absolutely. And we can't dismiss something as myth that's presented as history. But here's why I have peace. Here's why I have peace, that I don't know, need to know all those details. In the fullness of time, God sent one who passed the tests that Noah and Adam failed. And the Noah narrative points to him. And the grace and forgiveness that we find when we place our trust in Jesus of Nazareth. And if you are looking for historical evidence to support the scripture, start there. Because you literally have to break the rules of how we discern what is and isn't history to deny that Jesus was a real person who walked this earth right around the time that we say he walked this earth. And by the way, who does he testify to among other people? Noah. The Bible itself, the Bible itself, those of us who grew up with this, we often forget that the Bible didn't appear as the Bible. It, they are independent documents written by different authors, different time periods that were vetted more carefully than any other documents in history. Why? Because people were staking their lives on this. They didn't want to just throw something in that couldn't be verified. So in this, in what we call the New Testament, you've got testimonies from three of Jesus' original disciples, people who were there, Matthew, John, and Peter, as well as two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude. If those five 
independent testimonies aren't enough. The Bible also contains a carefully constructed account from a first century doctor named Luke and a man named Mark who knew both Peter and Paul. Speaking of Paul. His letters are contained in the scripture, and the fact that they are is especially remarkable. It's fascinating because Paul wasn't part originally of the Jesus movement. One of those other sources testifies to Paul's backstory. And his backstory was he was in opposition to the Jesus movement. The followers were fearful of him. Those of us who grew up seeing Paul's letters in the Bible all our lives, we forget how remarkable it is that they're even there. I came across this quote during my prep from a man named Luke Johnson. He writes this. He says, Paul's letters represent valuable and what? External verification of the antiquity of the traditions about Jesus. That's a lot of words. Here's what he's getting at. He's getting at, we forget this is external validation because this is a person that didn't believe this. And not only that, there's very few people who dispute the fact that Paul wrote these and dispute the fact that these were written not long after Jesus as early as the 50s BC, even before the Gospels. These letters can be dated. And here's some of the external verification we find in Paul about Jesus. That he was a descendant of David. That he was tried, crucified for our sins, buried, rose again on the third day, seen by many people. He calls Jesus the Son of God and the image of God. If this isn't enough because you say, I'm going to refuse to believe anything that you're calling the Bible, let's keep going. There are at least 10 non-Christian writers who mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. Let me put that in perspective, why that number is a big deal. That 10. There's not a lot of ancient historians. If you go back, it is remarkable how thin our historical records are for people that we just, like Alexander the Great, that we just say, well, of course he did what he did in those, whatever, a couple of years. Go back and try to find out how many ancient Sources testified to Alexander the Great. What's it, two? Something like that? Within 150 years of his life? If even that, right? So listen to this. Over that same 150 years, where 10 non-Christian writers mentioned Jesus, only nine, only nine non-Christian sources mentioned Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor of Rome at that time. Here's the punchline. If you include Christian sources... Authors mentioning Jesus the carpenter's son outnumber those mentioning Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, 43 to 10. That sounds like one of the scores of a U.S. women's World Cup team going against anybody else except take the 10, turn it to a zero, right? If you take just the non-Christian sources, it gets even better. If you take just the non-Christian sources, many of whom were anti-Christian, remember, you're about to see on the screens, comes from anti-Christian sources, many of them. Here's what they say about Jesus of Nazareth. They say that Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believe he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. And his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as a god. We could do this all day. And you could hold me at arm's length all day and say, that's not enough, that's not enough, that's not enough. I don't understand everything about the Noah narrative. I don't. But Noah points to Jesus. And you start investigating Jesus, there's a lot there. 
there's a lot there. If you want your head to be at peace with some of these mysteries, start with Jesus. Research Jesus. But here's the thing. It goes deeper than that. Your head can have peace, but even more so your heart can. The last thing I want to encourage you to write this down is that searching for the truth about Noah can lead you to Jesus. Not just information about him. It can lead you to Jesus. And God met me that night in El Paso in 1986. As a 16-year-old prideful kid who was calling out the creator of the universe for hold, including a narrative in the Bible that left me confused. Jesus provides credibility to a source that I trust more and more each day. And that source provides actionable content, even if I don't yet fully understand all the particulars. So as a worship band comes forward to, to close with this song about doing what we're going to pray, let's pray this. Would you please join me in praying? Father, thank you. Thank you that you didn't just create something that, that applies to one or two people. But you created this wondrous, this wondrous collection of scriptures that are filled with wonder and mystery that draw, draw us deeper. That instead of, of running around with a textbook that we present, we're able to invite people to explore the living word of God with us. And Father, we are beyond thankful. Words don't exist to express our appreciation that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Father, I pray for everyone gathered in this room that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our minds and hearts enough to welcome you in so that our faith doesn't have to rely simply on head knowledge, but that your spirit could be a living reality within us. Father, help us to sing these words and pray them as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.